You're listening to a message from Spindle City Vineyard. Connect with us or find out more at spindlecityvineyard.com. Well, I'm Brittany. Thanks for sticking around and hanging out with me. We're not going to be doing anything as fun as... No, I think we'll have fun. Um, Dan is... Dan's a dynamic teacher too, so I'm excited to see people go and kick it off with him. We're going to continue in the Bible. We started that, we started a series last January. Yes, he's right in here. Um, We started our series last January, going through the whole Old Testament, and here we are again, still going through it. Uh, But we are in Obadiah today, and before we actually kick off into Obadiah, I want us to be accountable for what we talked about last week, which was a small group Sunday. So we got together and we talked about justice and we talked about how God's, what God's justice actually is, because we tend to think of justice in the almost criminal justice sense. And that's not how God looks at justice. It's much bigger than that and broader. Um, But the other piece to it was then if God's justice is the restoration of the whole world, how am I gifted, equipped, What is my personality? How is God calling me to engage that very thing? Because we're all different. And that's in that the beauty of that is that the things that sit on our heart and burden us the most um, are the areas that God has gifted us to lean into and bring wholeness and restoration and solutions back to. So at the end of last week, we left off with the question of what are my next steps? You know, how do I How do I engage the way that God has called me to? So I want you to take the next five minutes and just share how you're processing that question. Maybe you had some really specific, clear things that came to light this week, and perhaps you didn't. But you can turn and chat with a neighbor. Um, I'm going to start the timer on my watch. All right, last few seconds. I'll help you wrap it down. Slowly begin to come back as you are able. And the good news is you can chat with this person over coffee and a snack after service. So if you have deep thoughts, if someone just launched a nonprofit idea or had some brilliant way of saving the world, you can keep going with that. But for now, I'm going to make temporary pause. Um, James 1.22 challenges us. It, it honestly is a verse that I think I reflect on most Sundays uh, because it's so easy it, myself included, to come every Sunday and hear a new message and be challenged. And then sort of through the week, the content just slips away. And then you come the next Sunday and there's a brand new message with brand new content and it doesn't always connect. And so sometimes it feels like we're just consuming. But James 1.22 says, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. You know, there's this idea of engaging with what we're hearing and, and it changing us. It actually physically changing, spiritually changing, mentally and emotionally changing who we are, adjusting our DNA, if you will, so that we become people who are participating in God's word alongside of him. And if we don't do that, then we're just sort of play acting and we probably can spend our Sunday morning doing something else, if we're being honest. Um, and, and I would, I, and as much as I love getting messages together, if, if it doesn't really matter to you, then you don't need to listen to me. (laughs) You can go have waffles or something. But as we realize and look at what God's calling us to and how he's gifted us, the way he's equipped us, the parts of justice that matter really significantly to our hearts, it's really important to remember as we're moving through the prophets that this isn't easy work. That just because God is on it and just because he's called us to it does not mean that this work is costless. 
In fact, it's extremely expensive. It will cost us our time, our resources, our energy. It may cost us our reputation or our career. People in our family may not understand us or disown us. And we've even seen instances where it's cost people their very lives. You look at Martin Luther King Jr., you look at a lot of people as we're going through Black History Month who have fought for the right for people to be recognized in their humanity and how vehemently people stood against that to the point of murdering them. And so when we join God alongside his work, our ultimate example is actually Christ, who did die on our behalf for the reconciliation of the world. And so as we think about that, as we're challenging one another, as we're having these conversations on Sunday and hopefully you know, deeply throughout the week, what is it going to cost you to engage in the things that matter most to you? I want to pose that question this week. You don't have to answer it right now, but think about it over the next seven days and say, God, you have invited me here. Maybe it's, maybe it's around um, gender or it's around race or it's around economics or it's around food justice. Whatever it is, what will it cost you to actually engage the way that God is inviting you? Because I think it's important to count it now. And as we dive into the book of Obadiah this morning, wow, look at this group is growing. Dan might win the t-shirt. <laughs> um, as we go into the book of Obadiah, we're going to discover a cost associated with joining God in his restoration work that I think we often overlook and we certainly don't really enjoy talking about. So I'll leave it there. We'll pray and we'll, we'll jump into the text. Uh, but Jesus, thank you for the challenge of following you, that there is a stretching and a growing that is required of us, but it is also a place of healing and freedom. And so we ask for all of that this morning as we go through Obadiah, in Jesus' name, amen. To provide a, a wee bit of context, Obadiah was a Judean prophet, which meant he was part of the lower or the southern tribes. And he probably wrote his very short book, if you haven't read it before, it's 21 verses. It is one of the shortest, it might be the shortest in the Old Testament. Um, and he probably wrote it sometime post-exile. So Babylon has come in, they have wiped out people, everybody is now refugees in other nations. And he likely wrote this very short text as a, almost like a, pump you up, feel better, hope-filled kind of mini sermonette that would have been dispersed around all of those different refugee camps to give the people hope, right? They didn't know if they were ever going to go home again, if they were ever going to see their families. The city had been destroyed. Jerusalem was, the temple was decimated. And so this was one of those little short things that was meant to give them a place of, um, just something to look forward to, really. And so that's why he wrote it. Um, and it's basically broken into two sections. So you've got section one, which is verses one to 14, which is judgment declared against Edom. And then you have section two, which is verses 15 to 21, which is restoration promised for Israel. So let's jump into the first one. And let's do some backstory here because Edom may mean nothing to you. <laughs> it's not culturally appropriate to us. We didn't grow up. We don't, we don't have maybe all of that understanding. But when God chose Abraham to be the family through which he would bring his restoration to the world, he said it's going to come through generations and generations and generations. And so Abraham, super old, has a son named Isaac. It's a miracle. Isaac has twin boys. Anybody who's had multiples at the same time, it's just chaos, right? And his twin boys happen to be entirely different in every possible way. 
the way they look, their personalities, everything. And so it makes for a really contentious home. If you have children that are not the same age, but are just different, like our kids, there's just screaming at random times. And you're like, I don't know what's happening. Is there blood? Okay, carry on. So anyway, I have a picture of, it's not a, I mean, obviously not a real picture of them, but Esau is red, red beard. He's, he was just considered to be this outdoorsman, really woodsy. He loved to hunt and do all of those things. And Jacob was the polar opposite. So I guess that meant he was little, I don't know. But Jacob was also pretty deceptive. He was a real sneaky kid. You know, those sneaky kids that like get away with stuff. They like, they do the wrong thing but they do it in such a way that you blame the other child for it. That's Jacob, right? And so he is the younger of the two. Technically, Esau's born first. Jacob comes out second. And because of that, in a patriarchal society, Esau should have gotten everything that was his dad's. That was the way that stuff was passed down. It was basically like, you're the firstborn, so you get all of it. And then the secondborn doesn't really get much. And any subsequent children after that. And so Jacob, knowing this, when his brother is very, very hungry, steals Esau's birthright from him for a bowl of soup. He didn't steal it. Technically, he traded it. Esau probably should have maybe thought more thoroughly about that soup and what it really meant. But essentially, what he does is he's like, you become the secondborn, Esau. I'll be the firstborn. And that means I get all of dad's stuff and you get nothing. And so that creates more contention and, and animosity. And then a little bit later, Jacob ends up actually taking the blessing that was supposed to be Esau's as well. So he, he steals all of this stuff that should have been his brother's. And in doing that, he becomes the one through whom the Messiah will come, right? Jacob steals the lineage, essentially. He's like, well, now I will be the great nation that God uses to restore the world. The one that is going to come, and he doesn't know all of the storyline yet, but he just knows like the blessing that was given to Abraham is now mine. Um, and so they have, they have their dynamics. They kind of make it up. But the reality is it just forms these two nations that hate each other because over the course of time, nothing really gets better. And so you see the nation of Israel, which comes from Jacob, and the nation of Edom, which comes from Esau. And any good sibling rivalry would say, don't settle next door to each other. Don't be neighbors. That's a bad idea, but they do. So you can see, I don't know if you can read it, but the yellow nation is the kingdom of Edom. And then pink is Judah and blue is Israel. So when they were united, <clears throat> blue and pink would have been one. So Edom settles right underneath their relatives. And it's a little bit like the Hatfields and the McCoys, or if you're a literary person, the families of Romeo and Juliet. That's the dynamic that we just keep watching unfold historically. So when Israel gets freed from Egypt, they come through, and the quickest way to the promised land would be right through Edom. And you would think like, hey, we're relatives. Let's just, can you let us pass? And Edom said, no, we're not interested. Go around. And so Israel does have to go around. And later, takes their vengeance, if you will. And David, when he becomes king, infiltrates Edom and actually takes the land under his control. And his son Solomon becomes exploitative of the people that are living there. They have two major trade routes. They don't have a great, like, that land isn't particularly good for growing things. It's pretty rocky and mountainous. So instead, what happens there is they have two primary routes. And that's where all of their national wealth came from. <sighs> Sorry, my lungs are... <laughs> smaller than they used to be. The baby's getting bigger. Um, so 
they come down and they take over and, and Israel's really oppressive to Edom. Even though they're their relatives, they really put them under their thumb. And so Edom tries for centuries to get free. They ally with Moab or other nearby nations to try and push Israel's power back. And eventually they do get their freedom. But you can just tell, like, there's just tension. There's, even though we're related, we hate each other. And the problem with that is that when Babylon comes to invade Israel, Edom's like, oh, this is our shot. We're going to kick them while they're down. And that's exactly what they did. And that's what Obadiah condemns them of in verses 11 to 14. Some of it will be up on the, te- on the screen behind me. But he basically says, you acted like one of Israel's enemies. You should not have gloated while they exiled your relatives to distant lands. You should not have rejoiced when the people of Judah suffered such misfortune. You should not have gloated over their destruction when they were suffering such calamity. You should not have seized their wealth while they were suffering. You should not have stood at the crossroads, killing those who tried to escape You should not have captured the survivors and handed them over in their times of terrible trouble. And so what Edom was doing is they started looting the cities of Israel alongside Babylon, plundering the wealth. But more than that, when people were trying to escape what was happening with Babylon, Edom was capturing these refugees and killing them. And the ones they didn't kill, they sold into slavery. And so God's like, hey, this is not okay. And honestly, if we... From our human perspective, it's easy to say, well, you know, Edom kind of just gave it back to Israel. Like, Israel kind of deserved it. They weren't exactly the nicest people. And that is true. But God says, you guys are from the same line. Your family. And so if we actually are reading through the Old Testament, no other nation has the same number of judgment prophecies against it than Edom. They have the most. And I think that's because God says, you're related to the Messiah, You may not be the line through which he comes, but his blood is tied in. You share that ancestral grandfather of Abraham and the promises. And so the second half of that then leads into section two, which is 15 to 21, where God says, yo, Edom, this has been really, really bad. You've been really destructive. I'm going to destroy you the way you've destroyed Israel. And Israel, things are going to get good again for you. You are going to be restored, which of course, to a group of broken down, weary refugees. That's wonderful news, right? There's hope in that, that they're desperate to hear. And so what happens here in this section is Obadiah ties Edom's downfall. He ties their discipline to this phrase that we've been talking about over and over and over again in the Minor Prophets, which is the day of the Lord. And he says in verse 15, the day is near when I, the Lord, will judge all godless nations. As you have done to Israel, so it will be done to you. All your evil deeds will fall back on your own heads. And this image, this phrase that's repeated throughout the minor prophets and the major prophets um, is essentially a day when the prophets are envisioning God's judgment falling against every nation that has ever hurt or wronged or oppressed Israel and Judah. It's this idea that like they're going to get their due because they have hurt God's people, and we are going to be restored to a place of power and position and prominence on the national spectrum. So in entirety, if we really think about what that means, the prophets and the people of Israel were looking forward to a day of national revenge. is isn't necessarily written like that, but if you think about what they're looking forward to, Obadiah makes a promise, you'll get the lands of all your enemies. 
They're looking forward to a day when the scales will be tipped. Because don't we all want life to be fair? Don't we all get really mad when it's not? No more than a three-year-old. Three-year-olds know. It's like you don't have to teach them what is fair. They know innately that I deserve that. And if somebody else gets it, then I should have some type of restitution. Um, usually it involves violence of their body and pushing. But we are people who really want revenge, restitution, a righting of the ship when we have been wronged. And I asked this question rhetorically, you don't have to answer it out loud, but when was the last time that someone did hurt or wrong us and we asked God to make it right by punishing them? I mean, maybe you're better than I am, but there are days when you're like, God, that person shouldn't have done that. Can you deal with it? And your version of him dealing with it inevitably is maybe a little bit harsh, a little bit justifying for you. You kind of want to see them squirm just a little bit. Again, you may be better than me, and that's wonderful, and I'm glad. In the church, hopefully, we are following Christ, and that's not how we think about it. But I was watching the news, I don't even remember how long ago, because it was during the victim impact statements when Nicholas Cruz was being sentenced for uh, the Parkland shooting. He killed 17 people down there in the high school. And I remember being so struck by the amount of hatred in the families um, because they were so hurt. And they had been so wronged but they took all of that and they only wanted him to feel everything that they had felt. And I, rem I wrote down some of the things they said. You are the lowest form of pond scum, and I apologize to pond scum for equating them with you. Um, you, however, will die as nothing because you are nothing. When you die, it's my fondest hope that they take you and burn you and take your ashes and throw them in the garbage dump because garbage to garbage. And so you, you even though we may think we don't, think that way, the reality is humanity, when we are wronged, we want other people to hurt the way that they have hurt us. That's our natural response, is to want the scales to be balanced in some way. And we do that by dehumanizing the person that hurt us. You don't deserve good. You deserve the same evil that you have projected onto me. And the scary part of that is if that's how we innately like to think, and Israel wasn't really thinking any differently than that, is that we can read passages of the Bible out of context and we can justify weaponizing God the way that Israel did. We can justify pointing him and his anger at people or situations and say, you don't deserve mercy. I hope God destroys you. One of the ones that shocked me the most, because it sounded like somebody who maybe was a Christian, said, I hope your maker sends you directly to hell to burn for the rest of your eternity. I just thought that was so void of, of understanding who God is. But that's the reality is that we can read Obadiah which talks about the sense of revenge, if you will. We can read David in the Psalms, who's like, God, destroy my enemies, please. They're coming after me, and I just need you to step in and bring justice. And we can say, God somehow is okay with me praying for the destruction of people. And that makes it really hard to pursue justice 
if we are still holding on to scales in our minds of what deserves and who deserves justice and what deserves condemnation and who deserves condemnation. And so we are practicing as a people, as a church, putting the Bible, reading the Bible in context of one another and not taking the books or the verses out of context, but instead saying, what part of the meta narrative does this fit into so that I can apply it correctly and really understand the heart of God? So that's what I want to do with Obadiah in this moment. Because as much as Israel and Edom and the story of the exile and Babylon is very much its own historical moment that happened in time, we cannot separate out the fact that they were created by God, chosen by God, to be living symbols or pictures of things that he wanted to do in the world. We have to look at them on both tracks, on, on parallel tracks, if you will. And so Israel are the people, the nation, that God has chosen to represent his will and ideals. He essentially says, you're like the new Adam and Eve, sort of, because humanity's broken, and so I'm going to pick a people who are going to do and live and be the way that I have called humanity to do and be and live. And so that would be selfless. Israel fails at this, so please don't look at the rest of the scripture and think, oh, they nailed it. Like, oh, they figured it out. They didn't, but that was how and why God selected them. Edom is quite literally Adam, which is the Hebrew word for humanity. So there's multiple layers of that interlapping. Uh, interlapping? I don't know if that's a word, but anyway, we're going to keep going. Um, where Edom is supposed to be a picture of broken humanity. The humanity that has rejected God and has ultimately done that because they've chosen selfishness. They've chosen the desire to be their own judges of what is good and what is evil. And so they have rejected God's ways because they want to be God. They want to be king. And so you have these two folks that are related because all of humanity is related, but they are supposed to represent these opposing sides of what God is doing. And the day of the Lord, which we have read about through multiple of the minor prophets and will continue, is treated as this day of national revenge by the minor prophets. But the reality is, it's far different than any of the prophets actually imagined. If you were here a couple of weeks ago, we started to really unpack this, because the day of the Lord is actually the cross. It's not this moment of physical war where God comes down with tanks and guns and, and just wipes out and annihilates all of earth that doesn't, hasn't bowed to him, hasn't kneeled to him. But it's a day of spiritual war when God destroys the enemy that has tempted humanity away from him. When his specifically is going to war against selfishness and that thing in the garden that pulled us away that said, we want to be our own gods. And when that day comes, we read about the judgment being poured out on like Assyria and Babylon and Egypt and Edom and Philistine and all the different places throughout the Old Testament. And when that day actually comes, all of that judgment that was supposed to be thrown out against Israel's enemies is directed at one single solitary person. Jesus, right? And so instead of him, instead of God aiming, if you will, his discipline at the whole world, he pours every single thing onto his son. And, we, and it, Jesus says in Matthew 27, 46, my God, my God, why have you abandoned me? Because for the first time 
and the only time in all of humanity, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit are not connected. There is separation because Jesus is wearing the weight of the sin and rebellion and brokenness of all of humanity on his shoulders on the cross. And so Jesus takes the discipline that Obadiah was foretelling against Edom on himself. He takes the judgment pronounced against Babylon and against you and me upon himself, and he becomes the world's scapegoat. He becomes the cost that we pay to be made righteous with God, and we can avoid the judgment of God by hiding ourselves in Christ. Romans 8, 1 and 3 said, Now there's no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature, that, that desire to be judged, to be God. So God did what the law could not, and he sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving us his son as a sacrifice for our sins. Jesus takes the place. He takes all of the judgment that we read about in the Old Testament onto himself. And so the day of the Lord is not a day of national revenge. It's really a day of national, where, national freedom, if you will, where God says, I will deal with all of the brokenness that has caused the world to become such a place of chaos and death and pain. And I'm going to do that by directing it at myself. And I'm not going to come with a, wielding a war, but instead letting all of the evil of the world be poured out on me and not responding and retaliating, which is exactly how Jesus demonstrates or lives on the cross. Jesus defeats pride. He defeats pain. He defeats the greed in our hearts, not by coming back and attacking us and slaying us, but by dying silently, right? When we see him on the cross, the night he was betrayed and the day he was murdered, what does Jesus do? Actually, like what are his actions? He heals, Peter goes and whops some guy's ear off, and Jesus is like, that's not how we play. That's not what we do in my kingdom, and he heals the man's ear. He welcomes the sinner who is crucified next to him, the thief, into heaven. The guy recognizes Jesus. He says, come, come be with me today in heaven. And then the most profound, truly, of all of it is on the cross, when, every, when the world is throwing all their violence, all their evil, and all their hatred at him, Jesus doesn't say things like Obadiah, which is, I hope God comes and destroys you. He could have, but instead he says, I forgive. Father, forgive them. They don't even understand what they're doing. They're really part of a bigger plot that they don't have any semblance or knowledge of. And so Jesus doesn't have this retaliatory attitude where he is trying to fight and push back and resist because God says the only way to break hatred is through selfless love. The only way to dismantle evil is not by responding with evil, but by responding in such a way that evil is neutralized. And that looks like utter humility. And the scary part about all of this and how this relates to our greater conversation about justice is that following Jesus inherently means that I have surrendered the right to be judged back to God. 
I don't get to decide anymore what is good and evil for myself. I let God define those terms for me and I live according to what he says in regards to everything. And that's, that's wonderful. And it's probably easier to live into until we realize that that also applies to our oppressors, the people who've abused us, the people who've wronged us, the people who've hurt us, the systems in place that break us down. Because there's a place where we want to hold on to the right to condemn and judge and hate because we've been hurt. And we want other people to hurt when they've hurt us. And following Jesus inherently means vengeance is not mine, retaliation is not mine, and hatred is not mine. The only thing that I get to hold on to as mine now is the way of the cross. And the way of the cross can best be described actually by a term coined by Martin Luther King Jr., which is the lifestyle of nonviolence. Because God didn't respond to humanity by destroying humanity. He destroyed Jesus, who then rose again because death was defeated by love, by perfect love. And so we're told in Romans 12, verses 17 to 21, never pay back evil with more evil. Do things in such a way that everyone can see you are honorable. Do all that you can to live in peace with everyone. Dear friends, never take revenge. Leave that to the righteous anger of God. For the scriptures say, I will take revenge and I will pay them back, says the Lord. Which we know looks like it, it, God's heart desires for that to be restoration of that person's spirit, mind, and body. Instead, if your enemies are hungry, feed them. If they are thirsty, give them something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals of shame on their heads. Don't let evil conquer you, but conquer evil by doing good. If we don't read Obadiah in the context of the Bible, we'll be like God of the Old Testament, angry and judgy and, and wrathful and ragey and whatever. And you'll get to the New Testament and be like, he seems like he wants us to be very different from that. Because you're not reading it in the context of the whole put together. But when we understand that the day of the Lord is not this day of, of God destroying the world, but of destroying the evil that has destroyed the world so that restoration can come forward, so that the kingdom that Jesus said now is at hand, the kingdom of restoration that the minor prophets were looking forward to, then it helps us to understand that all along God has been calling his people to live a nonviolent life in a violent world. That the only way that we can push back the powers of darkness, the only way we can participate in the restoration and the healing of the world alongside God is by joining him in that nonviolent work and surrendering our desire to condemn and destroy and dehumanize other people, especially the people that hurt us the most. And that is extremely costly work because it hurts. I want to be able to hold on to the right to say, you hurt me and you're a scumbag and I don't like you. And God says, you can't say that about somebody else because that's not their humanity. You are not the judge. You are not in authority over that. I am the only one who can speak to what is good and what is evil. You are called to bless those who curse you, to love those who persecute you. That is the response. It is actually very simple. It is just extremely expensive. Because we are saying, not my will, but yours be done. Just like Jesus said. And there are days, 
when that is not how we want to respond. Because being hurt by other people and by systems is devastating to us. And I want to be really clear, just to end very practically, how this actually comes into play, what it practically looks like. Because somebody might hear me and say, Brittany's telling me to stay in an abusive environment or an abusive workplace or relationship or all of that. And I am absolutely not saying that. What I'm saying is we have surrendered the right to condemn other people even when they've hurt us. What I'm not saying is that you lie down and become a doormat and die uh, because that's not true. In Luke 6, 28, when, when Jesus says, bless those who curse you and pray for those who abuse you, blessing means that we have given God back the right to decide what to do about that person. That we don't sit and say, you know, it would be really nice if they really got what was coming to them. I'll give you my most recent example. <clears throat> when we were broken into here at the church, like a month ago, um, I was not really all that upset. I didn't get upset until about six days later when Tim said, I'm really uncomfortable going to the building. I've never felt violated like that before. And then I got mad because my husband was upset. <laughs> I was like, how dare they make him feel uncomfortable? And I was sitting at our kitchen table and I began to have all those vengeful thoughts of like, well, God, I, maybe somebody will beat him up or whatever, whatever. You get that weird dark spiral. And I remember sitting at the kitchen table and Jesus was like, stop. He said, the person that you are, whatever is going on there is the opposite of what I want. And then I realized, yes, God, that's true. And so I began to just pray that blessing prayer of like, God, I bless them with their health. I bless them with their finances. I bless them with healing from whatever trauma is causing them to just pursue a lifestyle of, of thievery, of, of stealing to survive. Um, I bless them to be healthy and whole in you. And that, that kind of dealt with it, but it wasn't an, a long-going thing. That's a lot harder if it's a long-going thing that you've experienced with someone. But the idea is that I have decided and chosen not to hold judgment over that person by condemning their, their humanity, by trying to take their humanity away from them because they hurt me. That's what blessing is. What blessing is not is allowing ourselves or feeling like we have to continue to be destroyed by someone who is unhealthy. So if someone is hurting your body, blessing does not mean that you have to continue to let them hurt your body or your mind. Um, if someone is verbally assaulting you or, or destroying you or, or even just slandering you, you do, not not to, you do not need to stay in environments where you are being um, crucified by someone else's words. You know, if you are in a system that is keeping you or your family from thriving, from being healthy and whole, the way that God has called us to be, you have permission from God to call that out and say, this is unjust, this is wrong, this is not how it works. What we are not doing is condemning other people's humanity. We continue to say, God, you are the judge, and so I will bless them, but I will still stand up for justice for wholeness, for the restoration of all things. I just will not become the oppressor over the person that has oppressed me. And that is the distinct line that is drawn when we embrace the way of Jesus. Where we do not suddenly become hurtful of others because they have hurt us. And that's when you see the scales truly come to a place of equality and not just tipping in the other direction.
And so, as you consider this week, as you think about the conversation we've been having, what will it cost you to pursue God's heart of justice? Or maybe a better way of phrasing that is, who will it cost you? Who will you have to surrender your desire for revenge over? Who will you have to stop verbally condemning or gossiping about? Who will I have to start actively, prayerfully blessing, even though I am really heated? Who is God calling us to give back to him so that he alone is the judge? We're going to transition into ministry time, which is basically where we respond um, if you're new with us. If you're online, you are still part of what's going on, so you can stand up in your space if you're comfortable. We're going to have everybody here stand up, and that's mostly so that nobody falls asleep while we're praying. I feel like I just ran a marathon. It's literally because my lungs feel like they're shoved up into my neck at this point. <gasps> you take a deep breath. <clears throat> I'm just going to invite the Holy Spirit to come and pause for a moment. I think he's given me some clear things to pray into, but I don't want to jump past what he's got. So, Holy Spirit, we are, well, well, that's just not a fun message if we're honest, Holy Spirit. I know I want the right to be self-righteous, to feel morally superior when I've been hurt or wronged, and that's not, that's not how you do it. So we invite your spirit to come and work on us right now, right here. More, Lord. I have the sense that most of us have at least one person who came to mind during the message today. Maybe a whole system. Maybe a government. And that the Holy Spirit is inviting you to repent or to turn away from condemning them in a way that has been dehumanizing to them. <clears throat> and so realistically, we could probably all participate in this, but I invite you just even in the, your seats to, to just offer that, that thing, that person, that system back to God and say, Lord, you alone are the judge. They have wronged me. We're not going to pretend that they haven't. But it is not my place to decide their punishment or to met out their destruction. In fact, I'm not even allowed to pray that you would destroy them entirely because you have instead told me to pray.
pray that they would be blessed. So, Father, forgive me. I know in the core of my being that their destruction wouldn't bring me freedom and joy, but would just continue cycles of pain. And so I just put them at the foot of the cross and say, Jesus, what they did was wrong. It was unhealthy and they hurt me. But I look to you to heal me.